Today is February 5th of 2022, and I decided to bring back an episode from June of 2021 this week. It's on the way social media amplifies misinformation and what we can do about it. I brought this episode back for two reasons. The first is that I think the subject matter has more relevance today than it ever has, as people right now are, I think, wrongly contemplating increased control and censorship following the controversy with Spotify and alleged misinformation about COVID-19 vaccines being aired on The Joe Rogan Show. The second reason is that I've put in a lot of long hours this week trying to save this podcast from dying by making an effort to drum up interest and potential new sources of funding. If the experts I talk to in this episode are right, well, social media won't be kind to my show because it's not political and it doesn't deal in scaremongering or sensationalism. But there might be creative ways around that problem. There's a problem with Facebook employing fact-checkers and asking them to take down posts they deem misinformation. First of all, there's just way too much misinformation on social media platforms for anybody to catch more than a small fraction. But more than that, social media already has massive control over what people see and read, including mainstream media stories. But worse still, how are they supposed to know what's misinformation and what's real information? It's not obvious at all in science the way it might be in, say, politics. It might be a fact, for example, that the Pope didn't endorse Donald Trump for president, and so misinformation or fake news to announce otherwise. But science is not always that cut and dried. It's not a set of facts, but a process. How do you fact check an article about whether the low carb diet is healthier than a low fat diet? or whether genes, environment, or hard work do more to determine how well people do in school, or whether the virus that's causing this pandemic came from a lab or a cave or a forest. But in researching this episode, I learned that there might be a better way to reduce misinformation on Facebook and other social media platforms, even in areas of scientific uncertainty. That's the topic of today's episode of Follow the Science, an exploration of science, medicine, and medical misinformation. I'm your host, Faye Flam. I'm a science journalist and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, and this podcast is funded by a grant from the Society for Professional Journalists. My first guest is David Rand. He's a professor of psychology, economics, cognitive science, and management at Yale University. We talked about the notion of a post-truth era which he thinks is kind of a myth. People still care about truth as much as they always did. Human nature hasn't changed. The problem is in the nature of social media. We show that there's a big disconnect between what people believe and what they share. If you ask people to assess or say, do you believe this or not? Whether the statement is actually true has a big effect on their uh, ratings. Um, but if you ask people, would you share this or not, whether it's true has almost no effect. And so I think this creates the impression of, oh, lots of people, like millions of people shared this false claim. That means millions of people must believe it. But what our work suggests is that it's not necessarily that they believe it. And it's also not necessarily that they don't care about accuracy. But instead, it's that the social media context just distracts them and they forget to think about whether it's accurate or not before they decide to share it. This might seem a little counterintuitive, but I think it's insightful. And it fits with my experience on social media. 
There are a lot of people who just like to send things they think their friends would find interesting. And maybe they think, hey, my friend Faye's into health or space or physics. Let her figure out if it's true. So when you hit the news article, you're not in a like, let me think carefully about this mindset. You're just in a kind of knee jerk. Oh, yeah, that seems interesting. That's cool. Whatever. You know, retweet, keep keep scrolling. And so it's the the social media environment sets people up to share things that they could have realized was false if they had thought about it and then would not have wanted to share if they had had that realization. And, you know, the thing that's crazy about it is, or I guess to me that emphasizes the power of this, is I, as someone who spend all of my time basically thinking about accuracy and misinformation and sharing, I have fallen into this trap myself. Tell me how, wh- what types of things you shared that made you feel you'd fallen into that trap? I saw a tweet that someone did that was a screenshot of a Ted Cruz tweet where he said, I'll believe in climate change when Texas freezes over. Uh Uh, And it was then like, you know, tweeted around the time that there were all those like snowstorms in Texas. And I was like, oh, man, that's so good. And I retweeted it. And then, you know, a little while later, one of my friends replied and was like, hey, is that actually real? Like, I don't see the source tweet. And I was like, oh, man, you're totally right. We talked about a scientific paper that he co-authored in the journal Nature and a popularized version that ran in the magazine Scientific American. Both discussed the disconnect between what people believe and what they'll share on social media, and also discussed solutions that could work a lot better than fact-checkers. This gets to something I think you also mentioned in the Scientific American piece, that people sort of reinforce their identities with some of these things. So maybe many of your friends don't like Ted Cruz, are a little more on the left politically than Ted Cruz, think climate change is a real problem. And so I would think sharing that would also be sort of something that would seem appealing to your social circle. Right. The thing that I like about this example is that this is a case where like, if I I was not sharing it on like purpose, like if I had known it was false, I definitely would not have shared it, but I just didn't think about it. I wanted to know more about the part of his research that gets into the solution to the misinformation problem. That is, how to stop people from sharing so much bad information. And it turns out people do have pretty good powers of discernment, and that can be harnessed. You know, when we first started doing experiments on misinformation and fake news, the what we were focused on was belief and like why did people believe you know these false claims and what predicted who believed it and who didn't and what kind of interventions could improve the accuracy of people's beliefs and we sort of had thought of social media sharing as just like a behavioral measure of belief like it's an you know one way you could measure what people believed by was by looking at what they shared so we started digging into the psychology and the cognitive science of social media sharing And we found that there was, in fact, a big disconnect between accuracy judgments and sharing intentions. So when you ask people to assess the accuracy of headlines, they're actually pretty good at it. But when we looked at social media sharing, it was the exact opposite. There, whether the headline was actually true or not, had basically no effect on whether people were going to share it. So he and his colleagues tested whether people would be more careful about sharing if they were prompted in various ways to just think about the concept of accuracy. And what we find is that forcing people to consider accuracy dramatically reduces the sharing of inaccurate claims. 
And so then we did some other experiments where we just kind of nudge people a little bit to think about accuracy by say at the beginning of the experiment, we say, hey, before you start the main experiment, here's like one random headline, how accurate do you think it is? And say, okay, now go on to the main experiment. And so there the idea is having them rate the accuracy of one headline at the beginning just makes the concept of accuracy top of mind for them. So then when they go on to the main task, they're more likely to think about accuracy and we find that makes them uh, more, discern more discerning in what they choose to share. And then finally, we did an actual field experiment on Twitter where we recruited over 5,000 Twitter users, or not recruited, we identified over 5,000 Twitter users that had been sharing links from misinformation sites. And we sent them all a direct message, like a private message, asking them to rate the accuracy of a random headline. So the same thing we did in the survey experiments. And then we looked at the effect on the news that they decided to share in the 24 hours afterwards. And we found that sending this little accuracy prompt message significantly increased the quality of the news they shared. That's interesting. Did they share less? I mean, overall, fewer things? It didn't have any effect on their overall sharing rates. And instead, it just sort of increased the quality of the news sources they decided to share. Yeah, it seems like in some ways, it's good news that people don't believe as much fake stuff as they share. So yeah. there's less belief in rumor and misinformation than we might have thought from just counting all of the tweets and Facebook shares. Exactly. That's exactly right. I, I, I want to turn the discussion now to the question that you you tackled a little bit in both of these pieces I have in front of me, and that is the value or perhaps risk in having Facebook and other social media platforms perform fact checking and you know label things with accuracy labels. Overall, I'm like pro labeling. I think that there's a lot of evidence that shows that if there's a label on it that says it's not true people are less likely to believe it and people are substantially less likely to share it. In even people that say they don't trust fact checkers. And I think that the challenge with labeling is how do you do it at scale? So when they can't keep up, first of all, that just means that the system is not that effective because lots of content isn't getting labeled. And second of all, it means that there's potentially some bad consequence where if some false stuff gets labeled as false and other stuff doesn't, it might make people believe the unlabeled stuff more because they might think, oh, well, this could have been fact-checked and there's no warning on it, so maybe it's true. We also talked about some new research he's been doing that showed that regular people can be just as good at assessing accuracy of headlines as professional fact-checkers. And that, he says, comes down to a phenomenon called the wisdom of the crowds. It's interesting because there are big crowds on social media, and yet the actual way that social media platforms work prevent the wisdom from getting distilled from crowds. And instead, you really get the opposite phenomenon. You tend to get the foolishness of crowds. And so the thing that we are sort of have been advocating and have been doing research on as a way to help make fact-checking more scalable is to use the wisdom of crowds and use crowdsourcing to help have lay people assess articles instead of just professional fact checkers. And you might think, well, why should I trust, you know, some random Facebook user to know whether an article is right or not, or a statement is, is, is true or not. And the idea is any individual user, I wouldn't particularly trust, but there is wisdom in crowds. And so we have a paper that shows that if you get, you know, 10 or 20 lay people to rate 
a headline and say, do you think they just read the headline and lead and are like, how accurate do you think this is? And then we hire professional fact checkers to read the whole article and do a detailed fact check research on the whole article. And we find that with, you know, between 10 and 20 uh, lay people reading the headline, the correlation between their ratings and the fact checker ratings is as high as the correlation amongst different fact checkers are. So they basically get as much agreement with the fact checkers as the fact checkers have with each other. So I think that this suggests that that crowdsourcing can be a really powerful way to make fact checking and labeling feasible at scale. So I want to just touch on a big issue that I am dealing with in this podcast and in a lot of my columns, which is how can we identify misinformation, especially in areas like medicine or, you know, dealing with a pandemic when people are learning as they go along and things that people thought were true turn out not to be true? Yeah, so it it is totally possible to construct false statements or misleading statements that people would never be able to identify and would never be able to figure out was true or, or not true. But the thing that I think is key on social media is those like totally accurate, reasonable, or let's say plausible seeming falsehoods are boring. And so they will not do well. Um, and so I think that the, the thing that actually makes misinformation identification on social media easier than you might expect is the same features of content that make it more likely to go viral, like a sort of sensational and crazy and really like eye grabbing, is also a tell that probably it's not accurate. A lot of people started to worry about Facebook's fact checking when they found out that Facebook had gotten rid of most posts discussing the possibility that the virus causing this pandemic leaked from a lab. Why would that be misinformation? People are still actively investigating where the virus came from, and it's certainly an open question. The lab leak idea doesn't seem implausible, though for a long time it was politically incorrect. Maybe the wisdom of the crowds approach would work better because the crowd sampled would be more politically diverse than the people that Facebook employs for fact checking. You know, I mean, one of the things I guess I look at because my background is in you know writing these science stories that are not meant to be true, but are meant to be honest. You know, that often I, I'm dealing with cutting edge stuff because that's what people want to read about you know, areas of research where scientists are just starting to learn, whether it's about how the universe began or, you know, the search for life on other planets or how life began, you know, big questions or health questions that, you know, what people should eat that Mm -hmm. are still very open and that kind of taking an honest approach and being fair and, uh, you know, giving different points of view, reasonable points of view of voice was, was the goal, not so much to get at the truth in, in, questions that where the truth hadn't really been determined. Yeah. I mean, I think, right. There, there's sort of different, there's different stages of knowledge, like early, early in early stages where they don't know when we, things haven't been determined, it's being sorted out. Again, this is where I go back to like, what I think would be good for society is if in those situations, there was essentially just like less sharing of information And in particular, there was less sharing of information that seemed sensational or sort of like on reflection, not that plausible. 
I mean, it seems like it's particularly difficult to identify accurate information about COVID because there is so much uncertainty and there's a certain amount of disagreement. And there are things that the mainstream sort of accept as low probability things that are still acceptable. So, you know, one example would be the idea that you could get COVID because your neighbor was across the street with no mask. You know, it's actually, the, if you could ask almost any expert, they'd say that is unbelievably low probability. And yet most right. people would still say, oh, no, no, wear a mask, you know, because it's it's possible. But so it seems like there's a certain amount of low probability things on the other side are deemed misinformation, but low probability things on the safety side are deemed okay. Yeah, I think that, well, I think that this is one of the very unfortunate consequences of COVID getting politicized. You know, one thing that's a very well-documented effect in political science is the part is the impact uh, or like, let's say the power of uh, party cues, like cues from party elites, where like if an elite from the other, from your party says, this is true or good, and this is, this is less about truth and more about like what policies should you support, which I think are things like you know, should you be upset about your neighbor not wearing a mask across the street or like should schools be open or whatever? And I almost wonder whether it's hazardous to assume that we know misinformation when we see it with COVID because it's just more complex than that. Yeah. And so I think it's less like, you know it when you see it, but it's more like just slow down and like, don't just like be a little bit skeptical and like a little bit non-credulous and like, don't share stuff unless you're confident that it's true. Yeah. Yeah. Or in my case, I wouldn't even say confident that it's true. I'd say confidence, the confident that the piece you're sharing has been reported honestly. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. Yeah. My next guest, Gordon Pennycook, is a professor of psychology at the University of Regina in Canada And he's also a frequent collaborator with David Rand. I discovered him a few years ago when he was the author of a scientific paper with the irresistible title on the reception and detection of pseudo-profound bullshit. He's gone on to study the connection between susceptibility to fake news and the tendency to attribute meaning to nonsense phrases, i.e. pseudo-profound bullshit. In this interview, he helps explain this huge contradiction how, in his research with David Rand, they could tap into what's called wisdom of the crowd, and just the fact that there is wisdom in crowds, and the fact that there's so much foolishness on social media. So I would actually love to get your take on this question that's been circulating about whether it really makes sense for social media to employ people to fact check and take down things they deem incorrect? Or is it just too hard for people to be objective and, you know, do that, that good of a job of assessing and then getting rid of misinformation? Since misinformation doesn't really come with a label. Fact checkers are pretty good, I think, at identifying things that are flatly false, that are like made up, for example, which is a lot of the stuff that we deal with in our research. Sometimes the truth is uncertain. And so what the fact checkers do in that case is something like say that it's mostly true or mostly false or like a mix or whatever. I think that they, you know, can reasonably do that. What we, what we investigated was whether people who have no training can do it. And surprisingly, it's it's not that, it's not that bad, like somewhere between 10 and 15 people who are not even doing a fact check. All they're doing is you're giving them like a headline, for example, and they're making a guess as to whether it's accurate about 10 or 15 lay people. That's equivalent to about one fact checker, depending on, you know, the set that you're using and so on. But people's errors kind of cancel out. 
I think there are two separate reasons for the proliferation of misinformation on social media. One is, as we discussed, that people don't always worry so much about accuracy when they're sharing. But I think the other reason is that the algorithms that determine what you see don't care about accuracy and may even be biased against it. And the reason is simple. Social media is a form of entertainment. On that, my guest Gordon Pennycook and I agree completely. Find something that's interesting, and then you think about who might find it interesting, and then you send it to them. And then so you're just helping people think about it in terms of entertainment, right? Yeah. That's because you're engaging in an entertainment medium. So it's not a truth-seeking medium, you know, social media. It's, it's meant for entertainment. Yeah. Uh, and so people, people interact with it that way. Exactly. Yes. And especially Facebook, Twitter to an extent too. And I, I wonder whether, you know, some of it is people may not really think about the fact that the more that something gets shared, the more the algorithm sort of loves that thing and it goes everywhere. But the sharing of all this bad information wouldn't matter if nobody believed it, if it were all accepted as entertaining fiction. So my guest, Gordon Pennycook, and I moved on to talk about his views on what kinds of people are most likely to believe conspiracy theories and other forms of misinformation. Some social scientists have claimed that smarter people are actually more prone to believe fake news. But that, it turns out, isn't quite accurate. The reality is, well, nuanced. That gets me to something. I actually saw it on Twitter and it, it jumped out at me because it was somebody saying something that was essentially misinformation about misinformation. It was meta misinformation. It was somebody saying, oh, well, smart people are more likely to believe in in uh, fake news. And I think you had had commented on it. And I thought, wow, that's really kind of ironic. <laughs> yeah. He emailed me afterwards, by the way. And he was he was referencing, as it turns out, studies showing that political polarization is stronger among people who have more political knowledge, which only occurs as far as from my understanding, because they're more politically engaged. It does not mean that <laughs> uh, people who are smarter believe fake news more. And I told them we have data from like 15,000 people that say that's not the case. In fact, it's the opposite. And he uh, was not willing to budge on that point. So I, I think that might be his problem. What I've noticed in my experience is that people who believe in conspiracy theories or other ideas that have been deemed pseudoscience are often really knowledgeable about their personal views. To me, it seems like a waste of time since they know these minute details about ideas that are very unlikely to be true or in any way useful. Actually, I ran into this with something I got roped into that involves UFOs being, you know, extraterrestrial spacecraft. And I'll admit that we don't know the answer to that, but that one of the that that's sort of an unlikely possibility. And, you know, people were just furious that I hadn't done all of this extensive research on ufology, you know, and so. It was like, well, in a way, they're right. Like, I don't know as much about ufology because it's just not important to me. And I think it's so unlikely to be real that I'm not going to study that or creation science or any of the other things that people who believe that stuff think. And so it's very easy for them to beat me in a debate because they just start throwing out these terms and things and sound very knowledgeable. <laughs> I say, well, I haven't really paid much attention to it. Yeah. Well, I mean, you would lose a debate to someone who is deep in the QAnon space. Yes. Too. Oh, yeah. Because I don't, you know, I, I, I don't know that it's a whole. There's a whole, you know, lore. It's a whole legend and lore to QAnon, and I, I only know the highlights of it, but I don't know the depths of it. So it would be uh, yeah. easy for them just to crush me in a debate because I haven't really studied QAnonology. 
Yeah, but that's the thing, though, is that like we have some new data actually showing overconfidence is a pretty strong correlate of believing in conspiracies. And, and, and part of that is how much, how much weight to put on your own opinions. So you don't need to go down into the depths if you have a bad premise. But once you go down to the depths, there's lots of things that make it seem like the premise isn't flawed or that it just like you, you end up getting mixed uh, loss of the details. And then not taking that as indication that you are definitely therefore correct is a sign of overconfidence. And so that takes a certain level of understanding. For other other things like QAnon and everything else, it's the people who spend a lot of time thinking but aren't very good at it and don't really, when they're thinking, they don't really question their intuitions. They're not really thinking critically. They're just, you know, convincing themselves of, you know, engaging confirmation bias. Here's a puzzle that might seem weird, but it's relevant to the issue of who tends to believe in fake news. A baseball bat and a baseball together cost a dollar ten. The bat costs a dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? Remember your answer? It's part of what's called the cognitive reflectivity test, which can predict who is likely to spend a lot of time thinking, but is really not very good at it. And that that's a very interesting test because I wrote about that and you know, people wrote back and they were irate because they were sure the answer was the intuitive answer that yeah, was actually right. wrong. And, you know, I'd, I'd go back, I'd write back to them. And when they saw it, they'd say, oh, <laughs> but, you know, even when it, they, they were told the right answer, they were, they were convinced their intuition had told them the right answer. And I must be wrong. Yeah. And so that, that's good because in that case, you can give them the proof when it comes to QAnon or, you know, UFOs or whatever, there is no, yeah. oh, I guess I was wrong. It's just, you know. If you think the ball is 10 cents, well, I'm sorry, you failed the cognitive reflectivity test, and you'd pay too much for the ball. And people who fail that test are more likely to believe in fake news. And now, if you're thinking that I'm an idiot for saying the ball is five cents, you might be overconfident. I also, you know, and I guess all this conversation is making me wonder whether people can be sort of helped to think more critically, you know, even people that score badly on that, that test, maybe can they be sort of retrained to recognize how fallible they actually are? You know, are there, are there, is even that accuracy prompt, are there ways to sort of help encourage people to to think critically or even improve their ability to do it? Yeah, it's the, that's the, Nobel Prize question. If you figure that out, then you can get, you can, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> okay. Nobel There's something that shouldn't get lost in this debate on social media censorship. Facebook doesn't have to censor information outright in order to have nearly total control over the conversation. All they need to do is rank the ideas that they like as popular and the ones they don't like as unpopular. The outright censorship is just the tip of an iceberg. They can use the algorithms to bury ideas they don't like. But then, what if social media companies pushed popularity based on accuracy and assessed that accuracy through the wisdom of the crowds? Well, it would sure be a better world, but probably not one that would be as lucrative for the tech companies. So Facebook, in a certain sense, is always moderating the conversation. It's just how do they decide what what goes into the moderation? Although, I mean, in some cases, people, the, the ranking isn't that important because you see everything, but it generally is kind of important. Yeah. In a certain sense, if you ask people, you know, do you think this is accurate or would you want to see this sort of thing, then you could use that to inform your ranking and it's based on the preferences of the people, oh. which tend to correspond to, to the actual accuracy. It's still like in a certain sense, that's taking it out of the hands of the third parties and giving it back to the people. Right? That's a great idea. That's a great idea. I really like that. It would be, of course, it would mean that, that this sort of sensationalist stuff wouldn't be the top of the list anymore. 
I really like their proposed solution to the misinformation problem on social media. That is, gear the social media algorithms to rank posts by accuracy, reliability, and honesty, rather than just popularity. And to determine those things not with fact-checkers, but with crowdsourcing. Something that would really be empowering. It would make social media a force for good, rather than a sometimes harmful and addictive form of entertainment. And it's a solution that I think could apply to science stories, where there's noise and uncertainty and competing ideas, and it's not always obvious what's true and what's false. Thank you for listening to Follow the Science. Follow the Science is produced by Faye Flam. You can follow Faye on Twitter at Faye Flam. That is F-A-Y-E-F-L-A-M. Today's episode was edited by Seth Glicksman, with music by Kyle Imperator. If you liked today's episode, we'd really love it if you left us a positive rating and review wherever you listened. Thanks in advance, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.